By the way, I uh, hope you noticed one thing that was entirely and altogether missing from the first session. I said nothing about style. I said nothing that if an order, if, if, if real worship is to happen, it has to be done with an acoustic guitar rather than a Baldwin piano. Then say it has to be done with drums and not a violin, or it has to be done through contemporary songs or traditional hymns. It has nothing to do with style. Those are matters of preference, whatever most facilitates your capacity to enjoy God and to exalt Him. Uh, but worship in and of itself, and, and so sadly, that, it, it amazes me. Uh, I remember back in the, uh, really the mid-80s, 1980s, long time ago, uh, for some of you weren't even born, uh, when the so-called worship wars erupted in the evangelical world. And it was all about style. It wasn't about substance. It wasn't about the essence of real worship. It was about style and what people preferred and what made some feel comfortable and others uncomfortable. Um, but I just want to make sure you understand that the essence of worship is not about style. Now, I, I have personal preferences about style, uh, but that doesn't affect the substance and the heart of what real worship is. Now, having said that, <clears throat> I want to devote this next session to what is probably the most controversial issue among Christians when it comes to worship, and that is the role of affections or emotions or feelings and th there's a broad spectrum of belief. There are some people who think feeling anything in a worship time is really dangerous and to be suppressed, and others who believe that they haven't really worshiped unless they feel something powerful and uplifting and heartwarming. And I want us to talk about this and try to get a biblical perspective on it. Um, the most controversial aspect of this is the degree to which, if at all, our affections are expressed visibly and vocally. That's what will really stir people up. Um, it's one thing for you to, to have your heart filled with gratitude. It's another thing to give expression to that, whether it's in kneeling or lying prostrate or raising your hands or weeping or shouting. I mean, the Bible talks all the time about shouting and praise and joy to the Lord. Um, I, I, I can still remember when I was pastoring in Ardmore, Oklahoma, south central part of the state, and we began to move into new expressions of worship, and um, there wasn't a hand raised in that congregation or an eye lifted up. Everybody's eyes were fixed on the, on the hymn book in front of them. And I'm not suggesting they weren't really worshiping, but there was this attitude, this mentality that any visible vocal expression of your internal affections might offend somebody or might be... Uh, uh, incompatible with social sophistication and dignity and self-image. I'm going to tell you a story, and you're going to have to forgive my language, all right? Just bear with me. I'm just telling you how it happened. But when we began to move into new expressions of worship, I will never forget the Sunday that there was a lady sitting at the back of the church. She was visiting from another church in town. And I, I was sitting on the platform, and I happened to look up, and I mean every other eye in the congregation was fixed on a hymn book, which is okay, Nobody was smiling. They looked like they were just enduring it. And I looked back, and this lady's eyes were lifted to heaven. Her hands were raised. And it was, I thought, she's actually enjoying God. I, I, it's okay to do that. And I remember it just stirred something in me. And um, it was probably a couple of weeks later. I was actually sitting on the front row of the church, and we were singing. 
I'll never forget, it's just a short little chorus written by a lady named Linda Shazzo called More Precious Than Silver. Do you all remember that little chorus? I loved it. And I, and I remember standing there and I'm thinking, Lord, I would so much like to raise my hands to you. You are more precious to silver. You're more costly than gold. Nothing I desire can compare with you. And I thought, there are 250 pairs of eyes staring at my back. What are they going to think? And I'm telling you, this thought just erupted in my head. Ah, to hell with them. And my hands, <laughs> I said, I, I immediately thought, oh, I didn't, I didn't mean to say this. Well, maybe I did mean to say it. And I, my hands went up, and um, it really, it, it kind of ignited things in our church. But I, I don't know why that happened. I'm sorry to have to use that language. But uh, it, was a, it was a transforming moment as I began to realize the legitimacy of giving visible, physical, vocal expression to the internal affections of my heart. And that's kind of what I would like to talk about, because I know there, there are some Christians, as I said, they want to attend uh, what they might call the First United Church of Christian Feeling. And others want to go to the Orthodox Assembly of Christian Fact. And there never shall the, the, the two come together. And the result is that you can go to some churches, and you've probably been to some that are like um, a visit to a Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. And then other churches you go to are like a Sunday visit to the county morgue. Uh, and this divide that exists in the body of Christ is so tragic and unnecessary. So what does the Bible have to say about the role and the place of our affections? Well, we've already looked at the passage in Matthew where, Je Matthew where Jesus said that your worship is vain. It's to no end. It accomplishes nothing because your heart is disengaged. So I believe in the depths of my soul that real worship happens, as I said, our minds are enlightened, and it brings to light, it brings to, to, to vibrant expression the affections of the heart. Now, just listen. You don't have to look. The, I'm going to read these too fast. Just listen to some texts of Scripture that describe the role of affections in worship. Psalm 511, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. Do you hear those words? Rejoice, joy, love, exult. Those are expressions of deep, heartfelt feelings and emotions. Uh, Psalm 9, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 63, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Psalm 68, the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy, sing to God, sing praises to his name. Listen to how the, I mean, all those affections, listen to how the Psalms talk about gratitude. Psalm 100, verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and in his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. The role of love in worship, Psalm 31, love the Lord, all you his saints. Passion and hunger for God, Psalm 63, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Is that the mentality you bring? to a corporate gathering of God's people? I hope that it is. So again, if the reality of God and His saving grace to us in Jesus 
is displayed and explained and understood, and we don't feel anything. There's no emotional, affectionate response of gratitude, peace, satisfaction, delight, gladness of heart. Then we, go, we can go through all the motions, sing all the right songs, be orthodox in our theology, and still not worship God in a way that really honors Him. Now, I realize, because I've seen it, how terrified people are of emotionalism. Now, emotionalism is simply the pursuit of feelings for their own sake. There's no higher goal. It's like, let's just do whatever we can to orchestrate an atmosphere in which affections and feelings are raised, but they're not focused on God. They're not rooted in Scripture. They're not focused on God to exalt Him. But as you know, Jesus said in John 4, 23, God wants those who worship in spirit and truth. Now, here's how one author explained that. Worshiping in spirit is the opposite of worshiping in merely external ways. It is the opposite of empty formalism and traditionalism. Worshiping in truth is the opposite of worship based on an inadequate view of God. Worship must have head and heart. Worship must engage emotions and thought. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. So, We must be careful neither to manufacture feelings for their own sake, nor to suppress them when they are awakened. So, for emotional heat to be holy, it must be the product of theological light. Spiritual feelings must arise from truth and our perception of spiritual realities. High and noble thoughts about God are only so good as they awaken pleasurable feelings for God. Worship is neither a mind trip nor an emotional binge. It is a blend of both head and heart. I, 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 will, I can still remember as vividly in my mind. This was, gosh, 35, 40 years ago. I was at dinner with friends, and somebody said something that I honestly, it, it surprises me now that, that this is the case. I don't think I'd ever heard it before. He said something about enjoying God. And I just... It just hit me like a bolt. I thought, well, I obey God. I fear God. I worship God. Enjoy God? That, 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 doesn't, that doesn't fit. It feels almost flippant and casual and, and dishonoring until I realized, as John Piper has so often said, that God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in Him. He's most elevated in my eyes and the eyes of others when I enjoy Him deeply in my heart. So, listen again to some of these texts in the Psalms. Tell me if this doesn't describe what it means to enjoy God. Psalm 1611, you have made known to me the pathway of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. By the way, that's my life verse. That's why I didn't need to look at my notes. Think about it. In your presence, God, it's not just joy. I mean, you can do a lot of things that bring you joy. But fullness of joy, joy that, and and the image here is, it's almost a vertical image. It's like a container that you fill up and it just spills out. Pleasures, 
forevermore. Pleasures that never lose their capacity to enthrall the human heart and mind. That's what we find in God's presence. Uh, Psalm 36, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. That's enjoying God. Psalm 37, 4, I'll talk about this more later. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 147, verse 1, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. So, I could go on, I could give you dozens of texts that, that exhort us. By the way, these are not options. These are not exhortations to which you respond by saying, well, I'll pray about it. No, you obey. These kinds of expressions of joyful delight in who God is are perfectly legitimate and essential to the heart of true worship. Now, I want to give us, I'm going to give you two examples of this in the Bible. And this is nothing new to you. I'm quite sure that all of you have looked at these before, but I want us to dig into them deeply again. I want you to see two individuals who were unashamed in their extravagant affection for the Lord. And I want you to see the, re the reaction they got from those surrounding them. The first concerns David. It's found in two passages in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 6 and in 1 Chronicles 13 through 15. Remember the story how the Ark of the Covenant um, had been brought, was on its way back to Jerusalem. And you remember the, the word of the Lord was, no one should touch the Ark. But of course, Uzzah uh, didn't take that seriously. When the Ark began to tilt, he put up his hand to uh, steady it, and he was immediately struck dead by the Lord. Well, look, if you would, I think you got the text on the, on the screen. We're told that as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now, I want to skip down a little bit farther in the text. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, and I insert here, with extreme biting sarcasm, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. By the way, extravagant worship will always provoke that kind of reaction. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Yikes. Be careful when you despise and judge others for the extravagance of their expressions in worship. Be very careful. Now, remember again, both Saul and Jonathan had died. David had been installed as king. He determined to bring the ark back to Jerusalem, as I said, um, when Uzzah touched it and died, it terrified David. So he took the ark to Obed-Edom. He left it there for three months. He finally decided to bring the ark to Jerusalem. So he engages all the musicians of Israel to celebrate, to make use of every imaginable instrument, singers, celebrating the return of the ark to Jerusalem. And then look again at that passage we just read. As the ark of the Lord came, Michal looks out the window she sees David dancing before the Lord and leaping, and she despised him in her heart. Notice her rejection. 
how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Why was she so upset? Two reasons. Number one, David had violated her sense of dignity and propriety. Her sense of what is sophisticated, what is acceptable. I mean, come on, David. Common folk, they do that sort of thing. Uneducated, average people. But a king? For heaven's sake. You know, act according to your status in society. The second reason, we're told, is because of the female servants. She said, you've, you've showed yourself to be like those vulgar fellows, shamelessly of uncovering yourself. David quite literally couldn't have cared less what, the, what anybody thought. All he cared about was the Lord. He said, I have done this before the Lord. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house. I will celebrate before the Lord. And then it's almost as if David says, lady, you think that I have displayed an unsophisticated, extravagant, over-the-top display of my inner delight in God? You haven't seen anything yet. It's what he means when he says, he says, I will still celebrate and make myself even more contemptible in their sight. So again, it's as if he says, Michelle, do you, do you actually think that I give a hoot what anybody else thinks about how I worship? Do you think I bother to care about what others are saying about me? Going back to that day many years ago, that day when I raised my hands, one of the men who had founded the church, who had been a longstanding elder, came to me. And he said, Sam, why did, why did you raise your hands? And I said, well, um, because the Bible tells me to. He said, oh, really? I said, yeah. I said, why do you keep your hands at your side? Do you have a verse for that? <laughs> he said, well, as a matter of fact, I don't. And he said, but I, he said, it just made me feel uncomfortable. I said, well, I'm not here to make you feel comfortable. I'm here to honor God. And if you ever become God, then I'll take into consideration your opinions. <laughs> now, he and I had a good enough relationship that he didn't leave the church over that. But I've come to the point where at, at this stage in life, I only have two reasons for not raising my hands, gravity and old age. And aside from those, I don't see any reason or biblical justification for keeping them at my side. But you can worship God with your hands in your pocket. I think it might be painful um, but, and hard. It is for me. But again, whether you raise them or you keep them at your side is really irrelevant. The question is, what is happening in your heart? Um, I love how Charles Spurgeon commented on David's experience here. Uh, you remember Spurgeon, 19th century Baptist preacher? He says, quote, it is to be feared that the church of the present day, through a craving for excessive propriety, is growing too artificial, so that inquirers' cries and believers' shouts would be silenced if they were heard in our assemblies. Now, this may be better than boisterous fanaticism, but there is as much danger in the one direction as the other. For our part, we are touched to the heart by a little sacred excess. And when godly men in their joy overleap the narrow bounds of decorum, we do not, like Michal, Saul's daughter, eye them with a sneering heart. I love that. Now, let's go to the New Testament. You all know the story about Mary. And I just want to unpack this. I want you to think a little bit more deeply with me about it. Jesus and his disciples are in Bethany. It's a village about two miles east of Jerusalem. 
there were at least 15 men present. There were the 12 disciples, Jesus, Simon, and Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Um, and there were at least two women, Martha and, of course, her sister Mary. You remember the story. Let me just read it to you quickly from Mark chapter 14. Mary came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, several things to note. What Mary did in and of itself was not unusual or unexpected. Whenever you had a guest come into your home in those days, you would typically anoint them. In fact, if you remember the story in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus goes to the home of Simon the Pharisee, and that, uh, that prostitute who came in from the streets, kind of sneaked into the, to the party, came up to Jesus and began to weep, and her tears fell on his feet. She anointed them, wiped them dry with her head, and Simon was scandalized by it. And Jesus rebukes him, says, you didn't even bother to anoint me when I came in, but she has anointed me with her tears and wiped them dry with her hair. So that in and of itself was not the reason for why the disciples took offense. It was the incalculable cost of what she did. It was the expense, the sheer financial extravagance. John says it was 300 denarii, which was basically an entire year's salary for an average working man. So think about that. What it would take a man to earn over an entire year, and Mary expends it upon Jesus in that one moment. So you can understand the reaction of the disciples. My guess is they probably sat there in stunned silence for a moment, looking at each other and going, did you just see what I saw? Can you believe she did this? Well, in the first place, my response would have been, look, it's her perfume, it's not yours. She can do with it whatever she wants, so shut up. But there's no reason, there's no reason to think the disciples are motivated by greed. There's no reason to think that maybe they wanted to sell the nard and they could get the money. Um, in fact, uh, it was typical on, uh, during Passover to take up an offering for the poor. So maybe they really did intend for the nard to be used as a gift to help those in poverty. But I, I read this story and I think, is there a lid on the perfume of our passion? You know, if we kept it neatly encased in um, a flask of fine-grained gypsum, or do we do like Mary, we snap off the neck and we pour it out in love for the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of what others might think and how they might react? You know, rarely... Um, have I run into a person who's come to me and said, Sam, I'm really having trouble in the church because I'm being consistently charged with being an extravagant lover of Jesus. Rarely do I hear that. Um, I wish that people would say that about me. But you say, well, if I display my affection like Mary did or like David did, what will people think? Why do you care? Seriously, folks, if you know who you are in Christ, 
If you know his love for you and your identity in Jesus, what does it matter what other people think? I mean, granted, Peter and John, Matthew and Andrew and James and all the disciples were there. And, and they were scandalized. The fact of the matter is, spiritual extravagance will always invite criticism. And not just from the world, we expect it from the world, but when it comes from people within the body of Christ, it's even more painful and more difficult to handle. There are people in the church, sad to say, who think that anything above the bare minimum in worship is too much. What the disciples considered to be waste, Jesus calls beautiful. You see, genuine love that Mary had for Jesus never calculates. It never counts up, well, how much can I give or how little can I give and not be thought to be holding back? True love never calculates and never, the word enough is never part of its vocabulary. True love is never determined by what is deemed fitting by others. Because in this act, Mary was absolutely offensive to the other disciples. I mean, you can just hear them. Mary, be reasonable. Where is your sense of proportion? Well, when it comes to love for the Lord, there's no such thing as proportion. If he's infinitely glorious, he's deserving of infinite worship and praise. In fact, I would suggest, now I know I'm going a little bit beyond the text here, but I can't help but wonder if Mary felt at that moment that she had given too little, not too much. So I, I've kind of hypothesized in my mind a conversation between Mary and Peter. And it would have gone something like this. 300 denarii, Mary, are, are you sure you want to do this? I mean, really? And Mary says, oh, Peter, you're right. I can't believe I was so stupid and so calloused and so unthinking. What's the matter with me? I hope you and the other guys will forgive me. Peter, that's okay, Mary. Don't be too hard on yourself. I mean, surely you haven't forgotten the number of times I goofed up and stuck my foot in my mouth. Thanks, Peter. I appreciate that. I think nothing of it, Mary. We all make mistakes. I mean, remember, it's all part of growing up spiritually. Maturity only comes with time. I mean, every once in a while, we all tend to go overboard. Overboard? You, you think I went overboard, Peter? Well, of course. I mean, 300 denarii, a, ma a man's wage for an entire year. Yes. It's a staggering sum. Mary says to Peter, staggering? You mean paltry, pathetic, don't you? No, Mary, I mean staggering. I mean, way, 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 way too much. I think Mary would have looked at Peter and said, I want to honor you as the leader of the disciples, but you and I are on different planets. I'm embarrassed by what I did, but not because 300 denarii is so much, but because in light of the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty of my Savior, it's far, far, far too little. I think that must have been in her heart and in her mind. I know that Christians sometimes have been accused of lacking common sense, but unfortunately sometimes common sense serves to suppress true heartfelt expression of love and gratitude for all that God is for us in Jesus. I mean, I can hear the protest of those who were there that night. They would have said to themselves, she's out of control. She has no sense of proportion. She's so undignified. Why? Because all they saw was Mary. All Mary saw was Jesus. And for her, in light of who he was, 
There was nothing that was too much. I, I wonder, ask yourself this question. What do you see when you all are singing corporately in worship? What do you look at? You look at other people, watching what they do or don't do. You looking at the worship leader, the person who's singing. Do you look at a screen, a hymn book? Are you more of a spectator than a participant? Or do you look profoundly and deeply and with unbridled devotion at Jesus? So these people who found fault with Mary, all they could do was look at her. And they mistook her beautiful act for waste. But because Mary looked solely and altogether at Jesus, it was the only possible and appropriate response. Now, people might say, well, she sure sacrificed a lot to worship her Lord. Really? Think about the word sacrifice. What does it mean? Well, sacrifice is some price we pay to gain something that we think is of more value than what we have to give in order to get it. So, for example, you, you go to the ice cream shop and you lay down a certain amount of money for a banana split. You sacrifice the money for the sake of gaining the pleasure of having a banana split. Or you pay $9 down to see a good movie. Um, you hope that the weight loss and the movie make worthwhile the sacrifice you gained uh, to get it. But my point is, in every sacrifice, there's a giving up. There's a loss of something in order to gain something. Mary did not believe she had sacrificed anything. What she gained in knowing and enjoying and loving Jesus transformed into great joy what might otherwise be thought of as a painful sacrifice. Let me say that again. What Mary gained in knowing and loving and lauding her Lord transformed into a profound joy what might otherwise be thought of as a painful sacrifice. Giving up 300 denarii to her was nothing because she saw the beauty and the majesty of Christ. Once you see Jesus as Mary saw him, you'll never ask, how much money will this cost me? Once you see Jesus as Mary saw him and, and you've tasted the sweetness of your Savior, you'll never ask, oh, but what will people think if they see my devotion displayed? Once you've experienced and known and enjoyed Jesus as Mary did, you will never ask, well, does this mean I'll eventually die as a martyr? Or what physical comforts will I forfeit? So just ask yourself a question. What language do you use to describe your affection for Christ? Is it unashamed? Is it extravagant? Or is it held in check and suppressed? I know the answer to that question when it comes to Mary and David. I'm still asking that question of myself. Now, let me kind of come back to our principal theme here and talk about the role of affections. And I'm going to draw our attention to one text of Scripture before we end. It's found in Psalm 37. So if you have your Bibles and you want to open to Psalm 37, you can do so. You know this text well, but let me just read it to you briefly. Psalm 37. I'm going to begin down with verse, uh, with verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil desires. Am I in the right psalm? Where is my text? 
I thought it was right there. Oh, I'm sorry. I started with uh, verse 5. I should have started with verse 3. So let me go back. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the, de the <laughs> desires of your heart. Now, the question that immediately comes up in my mind is, how do I not use my delight in the Lord to get me uh, gifts and goodies from him beyond what he is and who he is for me in Jesus? In other words, how do I not fall, uh, fail here and use the gospel to get goodies from God? Uh, when I come up, came up against this question, I actually wrote my good friend John Piper an email. I said, John, I said, how, how do I not make use of this text to justify some version of the prosperity gospel? In other words, I'm delighting myself in the Lord because I want more money. I'm delighting myself in the Lord because I want a more prosperous lifestyle or a new car or a better and faster computer. And he responded, and he helped me very much in this. He said that the desires of the heart must be desires that are satisfied in more of God in more and more ways. If that were not the case, we would not be truly delighting in God as an end in itself, but only in using God to get what we enjoy more than what may be found in Him. He continues, he said, I often say that the desire of the heart that we get is God Himself, but the text implies plurality, and so I'm willing to say that we get more of God in more ways when we delight in Him. It does not promise that, we all, that all we can conceive of enjoying will come to us, but that our desires to taste more of God in many ways will be arranged according to God's wise and loving plan. So again, if your desire is holy in God, if your delight is in Him, you'll discover that the desires that you have are not for anything that would diminish your affection for Him. If you find that your desires that you hope will come as a result of delighting in God, are something in life that will detract your affection for Him and Him only, then you have desired Him properly. Not long ago, um, I was reading a blog post where somebody uh, was criticizing what's known as Christian hedonism. I don't know if you all know of Christian hedonism. I know it, this sounds like a contradiction in terms, like fried ice or a square circle. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure as an end in itself. That our world is consumed by hedonism. Christian hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure in God and all that he is for us in Christ. And this blogger was objecting. He said, look, the reason why we worship God is for no other purpose other than that he is deserving of it. I said, well, of course he's deserving of it. Yes, that's why we worship. But the question is, how do we worship? How do we demonstrate his worth and his value? It is by finding in him the most deepest, satisfying, sanctifying grace that anything in this world could possibly offer us. Something greater and more pleasurable than everything that this world could possibly give. Now, having said that, I, I want to dig more deeply in just a few minutes before we break. Um, I want to talk just a little bit more about how we can defile this kind of worship how we can um, insult God in the midst of our extravagant and uh, display of affection for Him. And it comes back to that passage in Acts chapter 17. God cannot be served by human hands as though He needed anything. Now listen to how Paul justifies that. 
He said, God gives to all mankind, everybody of every race, of every age, of every ethnicity, all mankind, he gives to them life. He sustains our life. He gives to us breath. Every breath that we breathe is a gift of God's mercy. And it's as if Paul is going to close the loopholes because he didn't have enough time or words. And everything. If everything that we have and are comes from him, what can we possibly give back to him that he doesn't already have? I mean, we sang it just a few moments ago from Romans chapter 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. So it's amazing. Paul focuses on God's creative act. He, he gives life to all. He focuses in on God's providential sovereignty. He's over all things. He gives life and breath to him, and he preserves all things. And if that is true, how can we possibly come to God with the idea that somehow we're bringing to him things that he otherwise would never have? You have to come to worship hungry. You have to come desperate. You have to come needy. I was raised with the mentality that to the extent to which I entered a worship service, thinking about my need was selfish and sinful. I should come thinking about God and his glory. And then somebody said, why don't you come focusing on your need for God's glory? Why don't you come focusing on your need for his grace? So if you've ever entered into a church setting or a worship service and you're fearful that you're coming with selfish motivation because you're broken, you're sinful, your, your life is, is racked with shame and doubt and fear, and you say to yourself, I've got to put all that to the side, and I've just got to focus on God. Folks, focus on God's capacity and His abundant overflow to supply you with everything you need to overcome your shame and to overcome your fear and your brokenness and your doubt. That's how God is glorified. The giver is always glorified not the getter. Um, there are so many texts. I wish I had time to talk to you about all these. Uh, Romans eleven thirty three to 36 passage is one of them. Uh, but l- let me just mention, you remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples? In, uh, it's in Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 20, same verse. He says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you realize there's no other religious leader on the face of the earth who's ever said anything comparable to that? You look at every cult, every philosophy, every religion, and why do the leaders do what they do? It's so that people can wait on them hand and foot. They can be served. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. What do you think you're going to give me that I don't have? I'm God incarnate for heaven's sake. No, I came to serve you and to give my life as a ransom to you. Um, one other verse that is just absolutely stunning when you think about its implications. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read it to you. Luke chapter 12. Jesus is describing what's going to happen at the second coming. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight and be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. He's talking about the second advent. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Listen to this. Truly I say to you, that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. What? Jesus is saying, when I come back in all of my glory with mighty angels in flaming fire, I'm coming back as one who will get on his knees and gird himself with an apron and wait on you to serve you and to meet your needs. 
I mean, what kind of a religious leader says such outlandish things? Only Jesus. He is the one who has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When you come to worship, don't come to give anything that you think he needs. You come to get all the abundant supply of grace and forgiveness and mercy and kindness and power and healing and refreshment that he overflows in abundance to give to his people. So when that happens and your affections are awakened and stirred and you wonder, is it proper? Is it okay that I might display myself as David and Mary did? What will others think? Put that thought out of your mind and simply ask, what is God thinking? I'm here to honor him, not to satisfy your expectations on what should or should not be done. Let's pray. Father, again, we, uh, Lord, I just confess how prone we are to live in fear of the judgment of others, ridicule, rejection, and we allow it to suppress the expression of our deepest desires for you and our most heartfelt gratitude for all that you are for us in Jesus. Lord, just awaken us afresh, I would pray, with the majesty of your mercy, the goodness and the kindness that is in your heart toward broken people like us. Lord, we, we need healing. We need refreshment. We need nourishment. We need renewed hope. And you alone can supply it. So we ask, Father, that you would uh, stir up within us the kinds of affections we hear about in the Psalms, the kind that we see in David, who couldn't have cared less about what others might think of him, who took no regard for his status as king over the nation, but saw himself as a child celebrating the greatness of his heavenly Father. Lord, give us the heart of Mary, who would have looked at this seemingly extravagant gift and considered it a paltry and pathetic little sum, knowing that her Savior deserves the whole world. So, Father, help us, we pray, as we contemplate how we worship, how we give expression to it. We ask that all this for the, would be for the glory and the sake of Jesus, in whose name we ask it. Amen. <laughs>